I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, an Easter Sunday special. Hope you're all good. Happy Easter to everybody that's celebrating. Hope you're enjoying the nice weather. If you're here in the UK, hope you're lapping up that sunshine because we're probably pissed down with rain every single day next week knowing this country. So uh, make the most of it. <sighs> Got to continue unpacking what we've seen, not just at Southampton, yesterday but over the last few weeks when it comes to Arsenal because obviously our season has has collapsed it's taken a turn for the worse our chances uh, of finishing in the top four are decreasing by the week um and also we now find ourselves let's let's have it right it's undeniable we find ourselves now in a battle to qualify for Europe altogether and that's not something I thought I'd be saying three four weeks ago I didn't think that Arsenal were nailed on for the top four. And those of you who follow the show, listen to the show, uh, will know that. But I didn't say, or I didn't think, I beg your pardon, I didn't envisage us falling off the way we have in the three fixtures that we have. And I know we've got injury problems and I know that there's been some circumstances around all of this that haven't been ideal, but it's not an excuse. Let's be honest. And I've watched the game back uh, early this morning. I've had time to process my thoughts further since the post-match reaction uh, episode that we put out late last night. And I've come up with five reasons why, when I think about it, Arsenal's collapse this season at this point is really not much of a surprise. Now, these are not excuses, but they're just things that we talked about, that we spotted, that we realised could potentially be issues quite a while back. Some of them we realised earlier in the season. Um, some of them we realised going into the season. And while we were quite kind of quite happy to enjoy the upturn in performances, enjoy the fact that we picked up overall better results than we did last season up to, what, three weeks ago, there was always the risk that these things would come back to bite us. There was always a risk that these five factors that I'm going to talk about were going to deny us the opportunity to achieve what it is that we want to achieve. So I'm going to go through my five reasons that Arsenal's collapse is no surprise. And if you think back to sort of recent weeks, you'd have heard me say this a million and one times. The top four is not nailed on. The top four for Arsenal is not a done deal. And sort of rival fans would say to me, oh, come on, Harry, come on. You're just, you're just trying not to jinx it. Come on, you know it's done. You know that Arsenal are in the driving seat. And yeah, we were in the driving seat in the sense of it was in our own hands. It was within our own destiny. But ultimately, and I've said this line a hell of a lot over the last few days, if you're not good enough to take those opportunities, then they're irrelevant and they don't mean an awful lot. You've got to be good enough. You've got to be ready when those moments come along to take them. You've got to be ready to cash in. You've got to be there waiting to capitalise on the slip-ups made by the teams you're in competition with. And I said it time and time again, we didn't have to be flawless between Crystal Palace and the end of the season. We didn't have to win every single game, but we had to be better than those around us. We had to at least match what those around us are doing. And yesterday was 
really frustrating when you watch the game and how it unfolded and the fact that despite being so dominant, we couldn't find a couple of goals to turn it around and that we did concede a silly goal, I thought, on the stroke of half-time, which gave us a mountain to climb. But when you add to that that Tottenham had, having looked, having seemed like they were going to pull away from us, had slipped up and dropped points. They, I, I thought they might draw against Brighton. I did. Like, yes, I thought that they would win. If I had to bet my house on it, I would have bet them to win. But there was a tiny part of me because I was commentating on the game yesterday. And I was very, very uh, sort of careful, by the way, not to jinx it when I was commentating. I was, if you if you know me, you might have sensed a touch of bias in that commentary, but I tried really hard not to let it come across. But if you do listen to it back, you'd have heard some points where I kind of said, well, you know, Tottenham don't look like scoring at the moment. And that's because that's how I saw it and that's how I felt. But I would always caveat that with, but we know they've got the likes of Kane and Son on the pitch who could quite easily turn this game around. They didn't. I didn't think they'd lose. They lost. And you're sitting there thinking, going into that Southampton game, what a huge opportunity this is for Arsenal. What a huge chance this is for the Gunners to put right what happened last week. What a chance we have here. But we were unable to take it. And it goes back to what I was saying. If you're not good enough when those chances come along, it's kind of irrelevant that they're even there. So let me go into the five reasons and then we'll take some of your thoughts and then we'll take some of your questions. So the first one for me, and these are in no particular order, so so please do not um, jump on me. But the first one is the manager. OK, you've got to put some of the blame on the manager. There's no. There's no way you can possibly avoid putting any of this on Mikel Arteta now. Am I one of those people that shouts and screams and is calling for his head? No, I'm not. And actually, I've been a little bit frustrated over the last couple of weeks when I've been very, very critical of Mikel Arteta and some of the decisions he's taken, uh, some of the team selections, some of the in-game stuff, to hear people say, oh, you, you never want to criticise Mikel Arteta. You just ignore him when sort of trying to break down why we lost the game or why we didn't win a game. And you tend to beat around the bush and you tend to kind of avoid that or, or go full circle around it. No. Uh, just because I don't sit here in front of a camera and shout and swear and rant and rave, it doesn't mean I'm not critical and it doesn't mean I can't see the same things that you guys see. I just choose to express those views in a very different way. And whatever the case is, whatever the situation is, I don't think that you can. I don't think that you can change the manager now. Like I, like you can do it at the end of the season. I think you can have this conversation, as I say, at the end of the season. And if Arsenal don't finish in the top six. It is a conversation that we really do need to have. And the club really do need to consider whether or not they feel that this man has shown them enough to justify if they are planning to throwing a lot more money at him in the summer window. I think that's really, really important. So I, I think come the end of the season, there's going to be a debate. There's going to be a discussion about Mikel Arteta. But I don't think sacking him on the 17th of April is going to make an awful lot of difference, if I'm honest. And I'd rather Arsenal bide their time, consider all the evidence, think about what the right thing is for the club moving forward. If they do decide that that is to move him on, then I'd rather that they take their time, identify someone and do it properly, um, as opposed to sort of sacking him now, panic appointing someone else because you think you might be able to squeeze back into Europe and then ending up in a position 
um, you know, where, again, you've made yet another mistake. So I don't think that Mikel Arteta should be sacked today. I think at the end of the season, we've got uh, a, a conversation to be having. But I think the lack of an elite level manager who can make the difference when it matters is one of the factors. It's not the only factor. Let's let's be honest, OK? When you look at the way the game unfolded yesterday, the, the environment that was created, i.e. the game state, i.e. the way we were set up, it gave us control. We were in complete control for the entire game. But we weren't ruthless enough in and around the penalty area. We weren't ruthless enough to take the opportunities that came our way. Again, goes back to what I was saying. If you're not good enough to take opportunities, what use are they? But there are certain things that I think Mikel Arteta has got wrong and and you need to place these things at his door. So when I'm I'm going to come on to some of the other points in a minute. But the first point, as I say, number one, the lack of an elite level manager who can make a difference when it matters. Had we beaten Brighton last weekend, and we could have done had we been set up right, I genuinely believe that, and then lost to Southampton, well, given Spurs' result, there's not an awful lot of damage done. In fact, we'd be very close to Spurs and it would be all to play for. And I said at the start of the season that I wanted Arsenal to be in the top four race right until the bitter end. That was my kind of what I wanted. That would for me, represent enough progress to say, okay, Mikel, you can have another crack at it next season. That's what I thought would be enough to tell me and show me and show the fans and show the club that we're moving in the right direction. And we would have still been well in that race. Look, we're still in the race mathematically, but we'd have been well in the race had we beaten Brighton last week, even with the defeats away at Crystal Palace and away at Southampton, which are not acceptable and I'm not excusing. But the point is that in one of those three games, Mikel Arteta, for me, has been the difference in a negative way. Mikel Arteta has been the problem. Now, there's no guarantees in football and you don't know 100% that we would have beaten Brighton, but we'd have certainly had a greater chance had we been set up with more balance, with more structure. Um, and in a way that, as I kept saying at the time, limited the disruption caused by the injuries that we're currently having to deal with. So I think the lack of an elite level manager is something that you can point at. It is something that you can look at. And when you look at the managers that are on course to finish in the top four, you know, you look at Manchester City, Pep Guardiola, elite, but does make mistakes. Let's not beat around the bush on that. Made a couple of selections yesterday in that game against um, Liverpool, OK, maybe his priority isn't necessarily the FA Cup, but still made a couple of changes that ultimately cost City. Zach Steffen in goal. Shocker uh, from him. I thought he was obviously clearly at fault for Mane's first goal, but I thought he should have done better with the second one as well at his near post. So all managers will make decisions that sometimes blow up in their faces, but you can't make such obvious mistakes like the ones that Mikel Arteta has made in recent weeks. So, yeah, I, I think that he did get it wrong last week. And so to get it wrong in one of the three is um, is enough for him to make this list. And again, I am going to be critical of him when it's necessary, when it's fair. And I do think it's fair to criticise him for the way that the Brighton game unfolded. I also think it's fair to put some of point number two on him as well, which is trusting in young players 
to carry us on their shoulders, not recognizing that it was too much to ask of these guys, not recognizing and not understanding that a combination of Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe and Gabby Martinelli, who between them only managed nine Premier League goals this season, was not going to be enough in terms of outputs to see us close the gap on those chasing the top four. And you can talk about the teams that we know we're a million miles off, right? You know that we're not at City's level. You know we're not at Liverpool's level. So to compare their outputs with the likes of Mares and, and Salah and uh, Jota and Diaz and, and Sterling is probably not really um, the route you should go down here because we all accept that they're at a different level. But when I'm seeing players like Jared Bowen do more, Wilfred Zaha do more, Rafinha at Leeds do more, um, and a number of others, you then can start to say, okay, they're good, young, exciting prospects who should be part of a squad and ready to come in when necessary and be complemented by great players around them. But they're not good enough to carry the weight and expectation of this great football club on their shoulders, not at this point in their careers. And that is the cold, hard facts of it. You know, there's no point in sort of denying that. And I think that a lot of Arsenal fans have done that. I think that a lot of Arsenal fans are very, very reluctant because they're our own, because they're young, because they're homegrown. And I get that. They need a bit of protection. But I think there is a real reluctance to be critical of the outputs of those players. And we keep talking every week, don't we, about the lack of goals and the lack of ruthlessness in and around the penalty area. Well, they have a part to play in that. And, and you can't deny that. You can't ignore it. So point number one, the lack of an elite manager who can make a difference when it matters, whether that be tactically, whether that be motivationally, because I think sometimes we've gone out on the pitch looking as though we're asleep, looking as though we're not mentally prepared. And I've said this before, as elite sportsmen, I do believe that a lot of the onus and responsibility is on them to be motivated. Self-motivation needs to be there as well. But I think as a manager, you've got to be able to rally your troops as part of what leadership is. It's part of what management is. And there's been too many abject performances, either at the start of games or just after the break, where you've gone. So what impact has Mikel had in the dressing room here? Because it doesn't feel like any. So point number one, lack of an elite manager. Point number two, trusting the young players to carry the weight of the club on their shoulders it was a gamble that has backfired big time. Point number three, defensive disruption. Um, you know, with Kieran Tierney, Gabriel, Ben White and Takahiro Tomiyasu as a back four, with Aaron Ramsdale in goal, um, I, I think that was a defence that was starting to gel, that was starting to develop, that was starting to challenge one another to constantly keep their level uh, very, very high. There was a camaraderie within that back line. And even though at various points in the season, we've struggled to score goals and we've not been, as I keep saying, as ruthless as we needed to be, you always felt like we had a chance of winning the game because you never felt like they were going to give away too much too cheaply. But you look at the disruption that we've had at the back and you look at the injury to Takahiro Tomiyasu, which that's not Mikel on Mikel Arteta, right? But you know, then you, you start to think about Hector Bayerin and the decision to let him go on loan. And I get that Arsenal felt that they probably owed him, given what a servant he'd been to the club and all the things he'd done for them during the lockdown and during the pandemic in terms of 
helping broker the pay cut and all of that stuff. They felt like they owed it to him to go. But would he have done worse than Cedric? I think he'd have done better than Cedric at right back. Although he's been okay in the last few weeks, overall, I would have been more confident in Bellerin coming into that position. So again, left ourselves thin without really worrying too much about you know, what the outcome was going to be if we picked up an injury. But with somebody like um, like a Bellerin, you're not getting anything by loaning him out. Had someone come along and said, here's £10 million and Hector Bellerin wants to go and, you know, it's his time at the club is up. You go, OK, we'll take the money and we'll reinvest it when we can and we'll, and we'll do what we need to. And I, But to loan players out when you've got problems of your own is the bit that I've, I've struggled with. Um, for example, you know... Maitland-Niles, listen, I don't think he'd have made the world of the... I don't think he'd have made any difference, actually, to Arsenal right now because I don't think he's good enough to play in the centre of midfield. I really don't. But people were right to question the nature of that deal and the structure of that deal and the fact that we allowed it to happen on a loan basis. So I've digressed from that point. But going back to defensive disruption, Kieran Tierney missing at the moment. I think that Gabriel's form has dipped. I really do. I think that there were points in the season where I were looking at Gabriel and thinking, this guy could well be our player of the season. Genuinely, there were there were performances from Gabriel where I thought he was powerful, dominating, much more mature than he'd shown himself to be in recent seasons. I thought his distribution from the back had improved. And I kept looking at him and thinking, yeah, you're getting better and better by the week. And I watch Arsenal every week and sit there and think that you're going to have a stormer and I feel confident and comfortable with you being at the back. But I think his form has dropped. I really, really do. Um, I think that Ben White's form has dipped a little bit as well. I think that he still shows a lot of the same qualities that we've seen throughout the season, but I think his progression of the ball is not quite as effective as it was. I think earlier in the season, he was quite happy to step out uh, a little bit more into the midfield, get involved Perhaps the lack of that or, or the the sort of how infrequent that's become is is partly because of Tommy Asu's um, absence and he doesn't feel like he's got that stability either side of him to be able to do that. Perhaps, um, you know, the, the fact that we don't have a Thomas Partey in the side at this moment in time has impacted him in in what he's been told he can and can't do. I don't know, but his progression of the ball has not been as great. And whereas before I thought he was quite clever and quite happy to put his foot on the ball and sort of bring people in um, and then sort of progress the ball beyond them, he seems to be a lot more one-dimensional in the way he plays the ball forward. It's not uh, a pass into midfield anymore. It's not a switch of play. It seems to be that ball over the top over the top of the left back looking for Bukayo Saka every single time that he looks to um that he looks to progress the ball forward and I think it's become predictable. So as I say, I think the the defensive disruption, largely based on injuries, I mean at the moment we're playing without half of our back four. It's a problem. But I think that has impacted us. I think that's one of the reasons that this collapse was always just around the corner is because of that lack of a strength in depth. And listen as I say, if you can keep clean sheets, if you can be defensively solid, then you don't need to be amazing every single week, but you need to cut out the stupid errors and you need to cut out giving away those sloppy goals. If you can do that, then you've always got a chance of nicking a game 1-0 or by the odd goal. And we've done that many times earlier in this season and we've come away talking about 
how much better the defense is and how much we've improved in that department. But we've just started to see some of those silly mistakes, some of those sort of uh, chinks in our armor really come to the fore again. And again, I think that's due to the disruption to the back four. Uh, point number four, only ever one or two injuries away from having to field the significantly weaker side, which kind of ties in uh, to the last one. No strength in depth, really. Um, I don't want to go on about Maitland-Niles again. I don't want to talk about Chambers because I don't think any of those players, as I said, are at the level that is required. And on the one hand, I'm saying you've got to be careful with loaning out players if it does you damage. But by that same token, I understand why Arsenal are trying to clear the decks ahead of the summer. But it's got to be a big summer. It's got to be another big summer, one similar to the one that we had last time around. Only this time, you've added the young core. You've added the Whites, the uh, the Ramsdales, the, you know, the, the Lekongas, the Tomiassis, whatever. Now you need to go out and bring experience. You need to bring in players that are ready, that are ready to come in and have an impact today. Not in two years' time, not in three years' time. Players who can come in and, and strengthen us today. And, um, and and I think some of, of the clearing out needed to be done. And I do think that from an Arsenal club perspective, and I take away what you believe or what I believe as supporters of the club, I do think that the reason the club haven't panicked on Mikel Arteta and didn't panic in January, as I've said on numerous occasions, is because they weren't expecting to be in the top four race. I don't think that that was their expectation. I think their expectation was to get back into Europe in some capacity and to go big again in the summer in the hope that that would be the final big splurge, big spend needed to get us back into a competitive position. And now the big question is not, do we need to strengthen? Of course, we bloody need to strengthen. It's not, do we need a striker? Of course, we need a striker. It's not, do we need to add further depth in other positions? Depth that is quality, not just bodies, quality depth. The question is, do you now, looking at the way this is unfolding, still have faith that Mikel Arteta is the man that you're going to give that sort of transfer pot to? That's the big question that is going to come up at the end of the season, unless we significantly turn around our form again between now and the end of the campaign. So the fact that we were only ever one or two injuries away from being significantly weakened is another reason why this collapse comes as no real surprise to me. Um, and of course, the fifth point, which is obviously one of the, the clear ones, is, is the striker problem. You know, the striker problem is a big problem. And again, I don't wish to dwell on names of the past. I don't wish to talk about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang over and over and over again because he weren't doing it either. And we were all talking about the fact that we needed a striker even when he was at the club and not firing earlier this season and not firing for large parts of last season. We talked about it time and time again. Is it a bigger problem since his departure? Probably because you'd have backed him to have scored a few goals. Um, a handful of goals could have made all the difference in terms of picking up extra points. If they come at the right moments, then great. But, you know, when it comes to the striker problem, I I'm kind of torn on this one because it's been clear that Lacazette isn't going to score you enough goals. It's clear that Eddie Nketiah isn't good enough. But the other thing is, do you settle for somebody that you don't necessarily want? Do you settle for somebody that you don't think is the answer? And do you pay over the top money, which we would have had to pay in January 
to get the players that we were linked with. Do you pay over the top money and basically then impact your summer window before you've got anywhere near it? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but the striker thing it is a problem because even with Lacazette in the team right now, you don't feel like we're going to score enough goals. You, you look at the other point I mentioned, which was trusting in those young players to carry us on their shoulders. Saka, Millsmith-Rowe, Martinelli, nine goals between them in the Premier League last season, which said to me at the start of the campaign that they weren't ready. But if you add to, into that equation the fact that the goalkeeper, uh, sorry, that the centre-forward isn't even managing double figures, then you got a big, big problem. And so while the striker situation is a problem, the problem around the lack of goals is a collective issue. And it's one that, you know, you have to recognise as being exactly that, a collective problem. Because it's not all on one man, but equally when your centre-forward isn't contributing, it's kind of then a little bit cheeky, I guess, and I'm, I'm being critical of myself here, to then look at a Saka or a Smith-Rowe and say, uh, you know, um, you know, you guys ain't doing it. But at the end of the day, you look at Premier League outputs from, from these guys again, um, and, and the people I'm talking about, Saka 9, Smith-Rowe 9, um, Odegaard 6, Martinelli 5, Lacazette 4. We haven't got a single Arsenal forward in double figures, and there's, what, a month to go in the season. That tells you everything you need to know about the level at which we're operating with uh, at from an attacking viewpoint. And... You know, for, for large periods of the season, we looked OK because our defence was good and tight and solid and we were keeping clean sheets and you felt that that would get us over the line. But the biggest mistake Arsenal have made, and listen, this is what it depends on, OK? If people ain't going to like this. I know I'm going to get criticised for saying this. If you're Arsenal Football Club and you went into this season thinking this season is about building, this season is about getting closer to where we need to be. This season is about further developing the Sackers, the Smith Rose, the Martinellis, giving the Odegaards, the Whites, um, you know, the Tommy Asus, the time to bed in and find their feet. But the results weren't the be all and end all. If that's the way you were looking at this season, then actually you'd say, well, those players I've mentioned who weren't really giving us enough output last season have improved in that sense. And next year, they'll be a year more experienced, a year better. Um, you'd looked at some of the players that have come in and said, well, they've been at Arsenal for a year now, for a season now, and they're ready and they're good and they're happy and, and they're ready to kick on and push on to the next level. Now, I'm not saying that this is my expectation or this was my view at the outset. I'm saying that if this is the route that the club have decided to take, if this is what was discussed at the highest level last summer when talking about their aspirations and goals for the summer, then Arsenal won't be panicking right now. And that would explain, I guess, in a way why they didn't panic in January. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with this. Again, I'm not saying it's the way I would have looked at it. But when I think back to moments like that Sky Sports interview that Edu gave, where he clearly did not want to commit to a position in the league, that was an objective or a goal or an aim or a target, then you've got to think that there's a possibility that Mikel Arteta has been told, work it out with these guys over the course of the season. Your job is safe. There is no pressure. Get on with it. Go and see what you can do with them. Go and see how close you can get. We're going to back you in one more summer. And then the expectation level is going to rise. And then the demand is going to be there for you to go on and get us 
back in the competition, back in the Champions League, back pushing right at the top of the Premier League. If that was the remit set and the parameters set for Mikel Arteta at the start of the season, then it would explain, wouldn't it, why there's been no panic from the Arsenal hierarchy. Now, again, I want to re-emphasise that point because people are going to come at me for this point, I know. I don't agree with that. I think as as Arsenal Football Club, a club of this size, there always needs to be a minimum expectation. And that minimum expectation for me is European football. So to not be in Europe for another season, if that is indeed how the rest of it pans out and we do miss out and we do fall away, would be unacceptable for a club of Arsenal's size. But you're going to learn a lot about what the intention was from upstairs and what the objective set were from upstairs if we miss out and Mikel Arteta still in the dugout come the start of the new season. So, again, I'm just speculating here, but this is what I feel might be the case. And it would explain so much. I think a lot of fans, though, are starting to get irritated and, and rightly so by some of the PR stuff that comes out of the club, you know, some of the interviews, you know, thanking the fans, this and that. Don't thank us. Go out there and put in a performance. Go out there and do the business. You know, and, and I think that when people are already feeling disconnected, when people are already feeling uh, as though this process, if you like, is in danger of blowing up and in danger of completely collapsing, to then read some of those things and to hear some of the excuses that come out afterwards are are a little bit irritating and they do great on you. But listen, Mikel Arteta is going to make excuses because managers do that. They protect their players. And if you think about the managers that he's worked under um, throughout the, the course of his career, David Moyes, very good manager. Is David Moyes um, someone who would go in front of the cameras and throw his players under the bus? No, he's not. Is Pep Guardiola someone who would do that? No. Was Arsene Wenger somebody who would do that? Absolutely not. Arsene Wenger would find any excuse from anywhere to make sure that he deflected the criticism and the blame off of his players, even when they were 100% culpable for the faults, for the problems. So I, I sort of read some of those comments and I listen to some of those comments in the press conference. And I know a lot of people get quite sort of animated about them and frustrated about them and make a big deal of it. But for me, I don't really see it that way. Um, I don't. I, I When I say I don't see it that way, I mean that I don't really buy into them a lot. Like I don't think Mikel Arteta went into the dressing room after the game yesterday and said, don't worry about it, lads. If this was a basketball game, we'd have won it 10 out of 10 times, which was something along the lines of what he said in the press conference. It felt like an excuse. It felt like a, um, you know, a justification and, and a sort of way of saying we did everything within our power, but it just wasn't to be on the day. I don't think that Mikel Arteta goes in the dressing room and says that. I don't think any manager goes in the dressing room and says that. But I can tell you that managers do not always say to the press what they said in the dressing room. And sometimes the approach will be completely different. Things are best off being kept behind closed doors. And Mikel Arteta has been a big advocate of that. He's been someone who's never wanted to let problems come out in the public. He's given you enough sometimes as a fan. For example, with Aubameyang, he, he said it was disciplinary issues to 
make it clear that it's not him and make it clear that there is something more. But he doesn't give much more detail than that. And people will speculate from that and come up with their own stories and scenarios. But at the end of the day, we don't really know. And as I say, just going back to that press conference point, I don't believe for a second that Mikel Arteta went in the dressing room after the game yesterday and told the guys, don't worry about it. It's like it was a basket. Sorry, don't worry about it. If it was a basketball match, we'd have won it 10 out of 10 times, which was something along the lines of what he said in the um, in the press conference. So don't read into those comments so much. They'll drive you mad. Don't get sort of bogged down by that because it's PR, it's media. Um, it's very, very different. So, yeah, um, that's where I'm at. You know, the five points that I think made this collapse inevitable at some point, the lack of an elite manager, trusting in young players to carry us over the line when just not at that point yet in their careers where they're ready to do so. The defensive disruption caused by injuries, the fact that we were only ever one or two injuries away from having to field a significantly weaker side and the striker problem. Those are the five issues for me that made this collapse inevitable at some point and therefore are the reasons why I don't see this as a big surprise. Um, we're going to take some of your questions. We're going to get some of your thoughts from the live chat. I just want to say a big thank you, first of all, though, uh, to a couple of people who have just literally signed up as members of the channel. Uh, Craig Tanner has just signed up to become a member. Craig, thank you so much, mate, and uh, really appreciate you supporting the content. Uh, means the world to me. And welcome to the family. If you are uh, a new member, if you hit the community tab on the YouTube page, you'll be able to find the link to our Discord server. Come over there join the conversation, join the group, join the family um, where we're talking all things Arsenal and uh, whatever else comes up, I guess, as well. So, uh, yeah, check it out, Craig, and welcome. And a big welcome uh, to Jonga82 Norris, who's also signed up as well. Thank you uh, so, so much for your support, mate. And as I always say to you guys, um, I know we don't, like, we do the members mailbag shows. Um, we slacked on that last week, but we do do those uh, wherever possible. There's just been so much going on, hasn't there, over the last week with with Arsenal. And and we are working on ideas that are not, I'm not, how do I put this? We're working on ideas that are sustainable ideas, basically. Ideas that we're going to do and be able to keep up because that's really, really important, right? It's no good doing these things once in a blue moon. They have to be sustainable. But I do really appreciate that you guys are supporting because as I keep saying, as a freelancer, when people are supporting your content, it means that you can then afford to spend more time on it and more, put more effort into it. So it's because of you guys that we're able to stream pretty much every day or put some form um, of content out every single day, which is brilliant. So thank you uh, all so much again. Oh, okay, so... Let's get some of your questions. Let's get some of your thoughts from the live chat. We'll be back in a second uh, to work our way through those. Okay, let's do it. Let's head over to the chat box and see what you guys have to say uh, on Arsenal's recent collapse. Tell me if there's any of my five reasons that you disagree with. I'd love to hear from you guys. Or is there something you slightly disagree with and think I should have put it in a different way. Or if you think it's complete and utter nonsense, please do uh, let me know. Um, I do want to take, though, this one from Jean-René Nshuti, who says, Harry, do you really think Arteta chose to trust in the youth or did the club decide and trusted 
that he could get the best out of the team. It's a really good point. It is because we keep talking about the trust in these young players. And it's why when I think about the fact that Mikel Arteta's job appears to be really safe and the fact that, you know, there isn't or there wasn't a panic in January to go and add further depth and further quality in, in the shape or form of an experienced player. It's why I thought that perhaps the remit set at the start of the season is not the one that we all think it was. And it would make sense, wouldn't it? And again, this is not, you know, anything more than me speculating. But when you think about it, as I say, that whenever the results go bad, there seems to be no pressure on Mikel Arteta. That whenever we fall short, there seems to be an acceptance that it's okay because we're building a youthful team and a young team that will be equipped to compete for the future. That's the, the vision. That's the goal. That's the plan. Who decided that? I don't know. What I would say, though, is it's obviously stemmed from the top. You know, the Cronkies have shown that they're quite willing to spend money when they feel that the investment is something that they're going to benefit from in the long term. And you can certainly say that that's the case in people like Ramsdale White, who could well be sort of linchpins in the Arsenal side for many, many years to come. Um, so there's that. You've also got to assume that Edu's singing from the same page. I know some of the transfers he's made and been involved in, i.e. the Willian transfer, kind of contradict that. But perhaps he's of the opinion that you need to complement those young players with experience. And let's be honest, I think we all thought, a lot of us thought that Willian on a free transfer to provide backup and support and more outputs, or so we thought, um, to that front line and, and some experience that could help those young players. I think at the time that didn't seem like a crazy idea. It was only when it went bad. Everybody kind of looked and went, uh, what have we done here? And to be fair to the club, they cut him loose quickly. And to be fair to him as well, he walked away. But I think that you raise a really, really interesting point here because Mikel Arteta must have agreed to going down this route though, right? Surely. I mean, I know you're, you're kind of suggesting that this has been pushed on him by the club and that the club have gone, nope, we're not spending big money on players that in two years' time we're going to be uh, looking to find exit plans for players that we're going to be paying huge wages to and players that we just can't get rid of. I think there would have been an element of that. I think the club would have had a say in this, but I do think that Mikel Arteta must have been well aware of what the plan is and um, and well aware of what he was going to be working with, the circumstances under which he was going to be working. I don't for a second believe that somebody as sort of strong-minded as Mikel Arteta would have this pushed on him without at some point going, now this isn't for me and, and wanting to jump ship because he is clearly very ambitious. He clearly believes whatever other people do or not is another thing, but he clearly believes he has what it takes to go on and coach at the elite level. We're starting to see reasons why he's, I'm not going to say that he can't go on and achieve that, because I, I don't think he's, I don't think he's terrible. Like I really don't. I, I think he makes some mistakes, but I think part of being really big on a philosophy is that you become a little bit stubborn, and often that stubbornness, in the end, it does kind of see some benefit. Now it's not all benefit, and there will be moments where that stubbornness costs you. Absolutely, um, you look at 
Arsene Wenger and how some of his stubbornness cost him at the back end of his Arsenal tenure. But you look at some of the great things he did and that they were because he was stubborn and he only wanted things done in a certain way. And he basically put across a philosophy and created a culture and an environment that was, as Mikel Arteta would say, non-negotiable. Like you had to drink, uh, sorry, you had to stop drinking. You had to start eating well. You had to follow the diet that Arsene put in place. He forced it on people. And that stubbornness and that, I don't want to call it dictatorship, but it is kind of that. It saw Arsenal reach heights that they'd never reached before. So I think that to be a coach and a manager who has great success and sustainable success, you do need to be quite stubborn and quite single-minded. Sometimes you'll get it wrong. But the point I'm, I've circled around a million houses for, and, and I'm coming back to you now, is that Mikel Arteta would have known this and Mikel Arteta would have accepted this challenge. Is it proving too big a challenge for him? Maybe, but um, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, people talk about luck and people talk about the fact that we went into the second half of the season relying on our luck to get us over the line, i.e. with injuries, especially. You can't rely on luck. You can never rely on luck. You should never rely on luck. If you work hard and you put the right things in place, I believe that that breeds good fortune in the end. So, yeah, I think he would have known exactly what he was getting himself into, Jean-René. But there is a part of me, as I say, that feels as though it's been laid out to him. It's been communicated to him that missing out on the Champions League or even the top six doesn't necessarily mean he's going to lose his job. Now, again, and he emphasised, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's how you build a successful football club. But when I look at all the evidence that's in front of me and I think about um, sort of the way Edu sort of shirked telling us what the objective was, the fact that we didn't panic in January in terms of adding to the squad, the fact that we have put so much trust in so many young players, it makes me think that that might well be the case. GB says, why has the attitude shown by Ramsdale and the centre-backs before the last international break seem to have done a 180 with their confidence seeming to be at an absolute low along with their play? It's a good point. They don't look the same. Um, and again, it comes back to that whole point around putting your faith and trust in people who maybe don't have the experience to deal with the difficult moments and... Not to deal with the difficult moments because, let me rephrase that, because obviously Ramsdale's been in relegation fights, but because I guess sometimes the weight of playing for a club like Arsenal is just so much that, you know, players jump into that ocean and they can't keep their heads afloat. And I think the, the, the tough part comes when you then experience those lows. When you're on the highs, it's great. You wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, you're in a packed 60,000 seat at Emirates Stadium with the fans all behind you and you absolutely love it and you're buzzing. But when it's going bad, that's when you show your character. And I don't really have any question marks around um, Ramsdale's character. And I don't really have any around Ben White either. But I think if everything else is working then we don't really look at them as a big problem. Um, 
we don't really look at their recent performances as that big of a deal. You can see the goal, you know, it happens. You know, you, you, you have the trust and the confidence that you'll be able to go down the other end and put that right. But we, we are, as I've said before, the defence overall this season have, have done okay. Um, yeah, we're on course to sort of conceding more goals than we did last season because we were on a bad, bad run of form. Um, but, and, and you'd have looked at some of these games, right? You'd have looked at Brighton at home. That could have been a potential clean sheet. You'd have looked at Southampton, could have been a clean sheet. And you'd go, well, yes, okay, in isolation, those guys have dropped off. But if we're scoring goals at the other end, it isn't that big a deal because you have that confidence and belief that you can go up the other end of the pitch and impact games and put things right. But right now, we're not functioning efficiently, effectively at either end of the pitch. And that's a big, big problem. I don't know that their attitudes have been bad, GB. I think that clearly they're suffering from a lack of confidence as well. And again, it comes back to what I was saying. Inexperienced players find it harder to cope with these situations because at that point, when you're in that sort of that rot, you, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't really know where it's going to come from. I, I'll give you a prime example. Experience is everything in anything. Like I find myself in myself, sorry, in certain positions when it comes to my work sometimes where when I first left my job, my day job to do this stuff, I was like really panicky and I was like, oh my God, like I need to make sure that I earn enough money. I need to chase loads and loads of work. I need to make sure that I can support my family. I need to make sure that I'm, um, you know, at the front of the queue for anything that comes up because how the hell am I going to continue to fund this idea of talking about football for a living and how am I going to support my family without having to go back to a career that I didn't like with my tail in between my legs. And the point is this, it's it's not completely comparable, but when you now know that you've done the right things and you're doing the right things and you now trust in your ability to come out the other side, when you do have the difficult moments and you do have the periods where you're a little bit panicky and a little bit worried about what's going to come next, you have that experience to limit that panic. You trust in what you've been doing and you trust in that process, if you like, and you keep your head down and you keep getting on with it knowing and believing that something else will come up. And I've got much better at that through experience because I had no experience of the football industry, none at all. I watched football. I talked about football. I did podcasts about football. I wrote about football from time to time in between my job when I could. But I had no experience of what that actual industry was like. But once you learn what it's like, once you understand that if you continue to do the right things, you will get to the right places and people will come to you for work, then then you, you, you're you less panicked. And it's similar to the situation that these guys find themselves in. They'll know full well that they're not at their best right now. They'll know full well that Arsenal are not performing at the level required and neither are they as individuals. But when you are experienced, you've got that presence of mind and that mental strength and focus to be able to get your head down, trust in what you're doing, not trying to reinvent the wheel every five minutes because that, um, you know, that can be unsettling and unnerving too. But you you look at it and you go, well, I know that doing X, Y and Z will get me back to where I need to be. And you get your head down and you focus on it and you make that journey again. So I think it's it's more of a, a lack of experience at the highest level 
with both of those players that you've mentioned there, mate, um, including Gabriel, Ramsdale, White. Um, it's more about that experience and knowing how to come through those difficult periods rather than their attitudes being bad, I think. Um, OK, what else have we got in the chat? Let's pick up a few more of your comments and thoughts before um, I jump off. Um, let's take this super chat from uh, Aya Thuthuka. Thank you so, so much, mate. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, very, um, very kind of you. He says, fans are overcomplicating things. Arsenal still need to build the midfield. No striker will help us if we can control. If we can't control games and create chances, you build a team from the defence, midfield, and then the forwards. I usually agree with that, but I think that somebody like um, somebody like Jurgen Klopp has kind of proven that you can do it the other way as well. You can build an attack and then add the defensive stability later, which is the way he did it at Liverpool. But I think you're right. I think that there's still at least another big summer required in order for the rebuild to be sort of complete. But the question is, do you do you accept the current level that we're at knowing that or do you demand that we're at a higher level now? I guess the two can't really go hand in hand, can they? Because if you expect and you demand the very best, then you're essentially set like all the time and you don't accept or acknowledge that a rebuild takes time, then you're basically saying that we can never give anybody long enough to rebuild properly. And we're always going to be trying to patch up or we're always going to be trying to put a band-aid over whatever issues we have, as opposed to letting them heal and fixing them properly. It's like going into a room that needs plaster and the walls are all unlevel and, and shit and you just get the paintbrush out and paint over it because you can't be asked to do the job properly. That's what we're kind of saying, isn't it? If we go, oh, well, no, we have to achieve this and we're not going to give this rebuild any time. So it's a hard balance to find, I think. Um, and, and that balance is difficult because of the size of this football club and because of the expectation around it all the time. Um, but yeah, I still think there's, there's more rebuilding that needs to be done. Um, the question is, again, as I say, are we going to give these guys enough time to do it? Have they earned more time? Uh, let's take a few more of your comments. Uh, let's take this one from Robert, who says, Harry, you're allowed to change your mind. I wanted to back Mikel Arteta, but the evidence of mistakes and poor results is without doubt. I cannot back him any longer. Um, Rob, I get that, mate. And I'm I'm not saying that I won't ever change my mind on Mikel Arteta. And I've, I've said throughout this show, when I talked about my five reasons that Arsenal's collapse is, is no surprise to me, one of them was the fact that Mikel Arteta is inexperienced and the fact that Mikel Arteta seems to make similar mistakes time and time again. So I'm not even, I'm not sitting here saying that Mikel Arteta is the man to take us forward. In fact, I put out a video last week where I said, he's done a good job, in my opinion, of clearing the decks, of managing that difficult period where we've had to move on players and then look to recruit with a view to the future. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the right man to take us on to that next phase. I, I, I literally said that last week because I do believe that. And I think if we miss out on the top six this season, which was the minimum expectation that I had going into the campaign, then I think you you have to review the situation in the summer and you have to talk about whether or not he's the right man to take us forward. But you also have to talk about whether he's the right man to arm with transfer funds in the summer. 
that's another point, isn't it? So I'm not I'm not adverse to saying Mikel Arteta shouldn't be our manager anymore. I just I just don't shout and scream about it. And often when I criticize him, which I do in the way that I do it, I get accused of that, of not wanting to change my mind or not being fair or not seeing what everybody else is seeing. That's not the case at all, I can assure you. I just don't think on April 17th now that he's going to get sacked. So I'd be wasting an hour of my time and everybody else's time if I was to sit here sort of saying, sack him today, sack him today, sack him. It's not going to happen. Forget it. It's not going to happen. At the end of the season, we can review it and see where we're at. And maybe we'll need to make a change. But I don't like to make judgment without the full evidence in front of me. And a Premier League season is 38 games. You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if Arsenal turn it around and go on a good run now and end up missing out on the top four by a point, let's say, that's very, very different to finishing seventh. So I just want to have the evidence in front of me before we talk about that in the summer. And, and that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Um, thank you for your comment, mate. Really, really appreciate it. There are a couple of super chats I just want to quickly pick up before I lose them. Um, and then I'll come back to some more of your comments in the chat. Bear with me. Here we go. Um, Saeed Abdullah says, when can we talk about Ramsdale being dropped for Leno? I don't think Ramsdale's the problem, Saeed. I've, I've got to be honest, mate. I really do appreciate the donation, by the way. Um, I just, I think that Ramsdale is one of those goalkeepers that when he's sort of brimming with confidence, he's a joy to watch. He makes wonderful saves. He's really comfortable with the ball at his feet. Um, you know, I, I don't think that Bern Leno is a terrible goalkeeper. I just think they're very, very different. It's clear that the club have decided that Ramsdale is the one to move forward with. And I don't really disagree with that decision based on what we've seen of him so far. I think overall he's had a good campaign. Leno clearly isn't happy playing second fiddle. Why would he be? He's an experienced international and um, and uh, and wants to move on, I'm sure, and will move on, I believe, in the summer. But I don't think that Ramsdale is, is someone that we can really be looking at and saying he's not good enough when actually... He's probably been one of our better performers over the course of the season. Uh, another super chat from um, Abhijit. Thank you so, so much. He says, why have we decided we'll lose to Chelsea? Man U, West Ham, Spurs can drop points. They're still in North London derby. Spoil others party uh, now. Don't make it easy for them. Come on, Arsenal. Comes back to what I was saying literally two minutes ago. Um, that And that's why I want to wait till the end of the season to have the full picture in front of me. You know, we didn't qualify for the Champions League at the beginning of March. And equally, we haven't missed out on qualifying in April, like in April 17th or on April 17th, where we are today. So come the end of the season, you'll have a bigger sample size, a fairer sample size. We'll be able to look at back at it. We'll be able to dissect it, break it down. Where was it won or lost? What mistakes did we make? Which ones came back to butt us in the arse? What was our view on them at the time? Because I think that's really important as well. It's so easy to be a hindsight merchant. Um, and, and we as fans are in a privileged position where we can be exactly that without any pressure. But to have to make those decisions at those moments um, is, is a completely different proposition and a totally different animal. And my sort of rule when I'm trying to be fair in my criticism of a manager, of a player is what did I think at the time? 
and would I have done it differently? And if I wouldn't have done it differently, and if actually at the time I wholeheartedly agreed with that decision, then it's very difficult to be overly critical when dissecting that. You can look back and say, yeah, in hindsight, it was a mistake. But you've always got to caveat that with the in hindsight part, because it's easy to do things in hindsight. It's easy to say things in hindsight. Um, and look, yeah, exactly that, Abhijit. You know, if we do manage to turn around our form and narrowly miss out, then, yeah, we'll be looking at it and going, oh, man, season of regret. Absolutely, 100%. But it would still show us to be a lot closer than we were last season, which would show progress. And then you've got to decide whether that's enough progress to suggest that he gets further back in. Um, let me take this uh, super chat as well. Again, thank you so, so much, mate. He says, we lost Partey and we lost three. It's not attitude or strikers. It's simply midfield. And all great teams have a solid midfield. Wenger's teams had a midfield. Um, yeah, look, Partey's been a big miss in the last two games. There's no denying that. He was awful against Crystal Palace, but that was his kind of first under-par performance in maybe three months prior to that. So, um, yeah, we are feeling the effects of these injuries. It's one of the things I talked about earlier on. We've only ever been one or two injuries away from having a significantly weaker side. And the gamble was taken. It was, we're not in Europe. We're not in the Cups anymore. Um, you know, come the end of January, what do we do here? I think we'll we'll take a risk in the idea that we may manage a clear out before the summer. And so going into the summer, we can do the business that we want to do without having to spend half of it offloading people. I, I genuinely think that's the way Arsenal looked at it. And the gamble, because of the um, injuries sustained by some of those players, key players, is proving to be a, a mistake. Let's see what else we've got. Um, and there is, as some of you have pointed out, there is a lot of revisionism um, in 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 sort of the, the chat box and within the fan base. You know, people sort of bang on about some of the players that have left since Mikel Arteta came in. Were any of them the saviours? No, they weren't. Let's be honest about that. Uh, put that coffee down, says Harry. How bad does it have to be before fans such as yourself say Arteta has to go? It's clear the job is too big for him to run on. The running looks like three to five points more. If we don't finish in the top six this season, I will say that it's probably time for him to go come the end of the campaign. But I'm not going to say it because people want me to say it. I'm going to say it when I feel like I've, I've taken some time, analysed and assessed all the evidence and have come to the conclusion that he's not the man to take us forward. When I get to that point, believe me, I will say it. When I got to that point with Unai Emery, I said it. I said it long before a lot of other people did, and I copped a lot of flack for that. And I don't want to repeat myself, and I don't want to go over old ground again, but the reason I've given Mikel Arteta longer is because he's inexperienced. So I can understand the mistakes. Unai Emery wasn't inexperienced, so... The mistakes that he made, they grinded on me a lot more. I thought that Unai Emery was brought in with the remit of getting us back in the Champions League straight away, in which case he failed. I thought that Mikel Arteta was brought in to rebuild this team and re help rebuild this club. And you don't rebuild in one and a half seasons, which was where he was at when people were calling for his head at the end of last season. He'd had 
one and a half seasons in charge of the football club. Now we're coming to the point where it's going to be two and a half seasons, two full seasons. At the end of two full seasons, I want to see enough to convince me that we're moving in the right direction. And if I don't, so if we don't turn it around between now and the end of the campaign, then I will say it. I will say it when I don't feel that this can go on any longer. But I'm not just going to say it because people online want me to say it if I don't genuinely feel that way. I don't feel angry. I feel disappointed because I care. I'm not online seeking clicks and seeking um, subscribers. Well, if you could subscribe, it would be great. I'd love it. And if you could click the like button, I'd love that too. But I'm not overinflating my opinions or overreacting in front of the camera and being one way off it and another way on it because I think that that will get me more clicks, more views. No, I'm being honest about my opinions. And so if I'm going to stick to that and be true to that, I'm not just going to say it because people are asking me to say it. Just a quick reminder, though, if you haven't uh, hit that like button, please do, because we've only got 42 likes on the board. There's loads and loads of you watching. There's no reason why we can't get at least 100 likes. And if you are listening via the audio platforms, please do leave us a review as well. That really, really does help. Martin says, if we lose the next three, we're potentially eighth. Surely then you have to be able to out. If we finish eighth, I'll be able to out. Yeah. Let's not beat around the bush on that. I would, I'll come to, if we finish eighth, I think I'll have to say, you know, that the evidence against is stronger than the evidence for. Let's see uh, what else we've got. Uh, Andy Love says, it's not just a question as to whether we keep Arteta for next season. Arteta may feel that the pressure managing such a club is just too great. Perhaps, um, perhaps. Uh, I've got to, let's take this one from um, Craig Tanner. It says, looking beyond the manager and first team, a lot of fans lord our youth setup, but why are we never able to get 15 to 20 million for some of the young players like Chelsea and Liverpool do? It's a hard one, mate. Like, I, I don't think that Arsenal go and dip into the transfer market when they've got youth coming through that they believe in, that they trust in. I think Saka, Smith-Rowe are proof of that. But it's all good Lord in the youth system. And I get what you're saying because a lot of people do do that. I, the amount of times that we talk about team selections and we talk about lineups and, and I hear from people, why don't we give this lad a chance? Why don't we give that guy a chance? Well, obviously somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody doesn't think that those players are ready. Somebody doesn't trust in them to make that step up. And it is a hell of a step up. Let's make no mistake about it. Stepping up from under 23s or under 18s into the first team proper, it's a big, big jump. And a lot of players have tried to do it and have sunk. And I don't look at that under 23s group in the way that I used to look at Emil Smith-Rowe or in the way that I used to look at Bukayo Saka and think, yeah, these guys are ready. So I don't really want to be too critical of Arsenal not bringing these players through. In terms of 15 to 20 million trying to get some of that money in for some of these players. You've got to find someone silly enough to buy him for that sort of money. And I think that the COVID pandemic has meant not a, a real reduction in spending, but a, a, a more cautious approach being applied when it comes to taking punts on players. And I think that can be said right across Europe. Uh, let's take a few more of your comments at Jonga says, don't you think Pepe would do as a striker? 
People say he doesn't have hold-up play, but he's got everything else, speed, finishing, and ability to take on players. He can create fear in the defence. I think at this point, mate, I would try it. Um, I, I would try it. I, I don't think it's the role that's best suited to him, but I would try it um, as opposed to Eddie and Ketia. Yeah, I probably would. Um, a few of you saying, like, Harry, I, I know you don't want to be negative. It's not that I don't want to be negative. It's that... I feel like in my job, which is to talk about, to write about Arsenal, I feel like I have a responsibility to not be knee-jerk. I feel like I have a responsibility that if I'm going to do my job properly, that I break it down in the most thorough way I think I can. And I'm already compiling sort of my breakdown for the season already. I'm already making notes for it so that I can refer to lots and lots of different points in the season and different factors and different things that I thought had an impact. But I, I, I'm just not knee-jerk. That, that's what it is. And I, I have had moments where my emotions have got the better of me. Um, you know, the Everton defeat earlier in the season at Goodison Park was one of them. The Villarreal defeat in the, in the UEFA Europa League last season was another one. There have been moments where I've, sort of got close to the edge and then I've calmed down and then I've thought about it and then I've broken it down and I decided in my own head that I was going to relook at things this season. When we were struggling earlier on in the campaign, it was clear to me that Mikel Arteta in his second full season was never going to be sacked by the football club. So I made a decision in my head to step back, watch how the season unfolds and then make a decision based on that. And, and form an opinion based on all of the evidence, not three quarters of it. And and that's what I, I maintain and that's what I'm going to be doing. So come the end of the season, if we do finish in a, in a really disappointing league position and somewhere that I don't deem to be acceptable, then I will be saying that it's probably time for a change. But I'm not just going to say it because people want me to say it. And, and, and for the record, I don't disagree with people that say, or, or that have concern that Mikel Art about Mikel Arteta. I don't think that it's a stupid opinion to have that you want him out. I respect that opinion a lot. I just want people to sort of make those points in the right way. Um, and I don't think that everybody does. Um, what else have we got? Westbird agrees. Um, think the time to discuss Arteta's position is at the end of the season where you can base your opinion on where we've actually finished. Yeah. As I say, the season is is 38 games. It's 38 games in the Premier League. There's no point in looking at where you are after 30 games when it could look very different after 38. You you have to wait till the end of the season and then um you know you you can make that judgment and that assessment. Um, put that coffee down, says, how can wanting your club to win and not accepting eight, six or fourth be negative? How many end of season reviews do you need to see this experiment has failed? Well, it will only be the second end, full end of season review that we can do on Mikel Arteta. And I think two is 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 a fair number. Um, and that's the point that a lot of people are missing. It's I don't think that accepting eighth is is what I'm doing. I've just said to you that if he doesn't finish in the top six, I think we probably need a change. I think sixth is the absolute minimum that he needs to achieve this season. And fourth 
was the absolute ceiling. So that doesn't leave much wiggle room. Fourth is a great season. Fifth is a solid season. Sixth is a season in which you've met your minimum objectives. There isn't much wiggle room. He's got three positions in which to wiggle in, in my opinion. But when you say how many end of season reviews do you need to see this experiment has failed? Well, this is only his second full season in charge. And I think two full seasons is a fair point at which you can cut off, assess and make your decision and move forward. I, I don't think you could do that after one full season. I don't think that was fair. Although at the time I felt like that, I felt like I wanted him out. I felt like I was, you know, really angry, especially following that Europa League exit and the way we kind of capitulated in that. It was annoying. It was disappointing. It was frustrating. But as I say, it was his first full season in charge. And I had to keep reminding myself of that. And that's what you have to do if you're in a job where you are there to analyse a football team and a football club. If I went on emotion, like, then... I'm assessing, I'm trying to assess Arsenal in the same way I'd assess a club that I have no affiliation for. And that's not always easy because you have to sometimes take yourself out of the heat. And I think I've had to do that. I think I've had to do that this weekend. And I didn't want to come on to the show straight after the Southampton defeat and be effing and blinding because that's the way I was bloody feeling. I didn't want to be sitting in front of the camera ranting and raving and swearing and and, and crossing lines. I, di I didn't want to do that because that's not what the Chronicles of Aguna is about. Maybe I'd have more subscribers if I did. Maybe there'd be uh, more listeners on the audio if I did, but that's not what I'm about. That's not what I believe in, in terms of assessing football. I think that it's very, very easy to, to let your emotions get the better of you. And as I say, I feel like I have a responsibility to assess things fairly and I know that 15 minutes after the game yesterday, I wasn't in a position to assess it fairly. And I wasn't in a position for three, four hours after the game to do that either. And that's why I did the show later on, because I don't want this to be the place where you come to have a laugh at someone losing their mind. I want this to be the place where you come for reasoned discussion that looks at both sides of the coin. OK, I am going to leave it there. We've been going for an hour and 10, much longer than I planned. But it's been um, it's been uh, it's been a good chat. It's been therapeutic. I feel a little bit better now, actually. We're going to be back uh, very, uh, very soon um, with some more Arsenal related content. Let's, let's just quickly take this from Aditya. Guys, Simiu is Arteta out off camera, on camera. He's Arteta in. <laughs> How'd you work that out? Uh, you got a secret camera in my house or something. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back very, very soon with more Arsenal-related content. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thank you all so, so much for tuning in because it's Easter Sunday. I know people have got plans. I know people are busy. I know people are spending time with their family. So I do really, really appreciate it. Uh, good luck to the women's team. They're playing in the FA Cup against Chelsea today. Uh, kickoff is in around about, I think, 15 or so minutes. Um UK times to do check that out as well. I think it's on BBC two here in the UK. I'm going to be sticking it on now. Uh, really, really appreciate you all as always. And I'll catch you all maybe a little bit later on this evening, depending on how I'm feeling. Catch you all soon. Bye-bye. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon. <laughs>